0: Let's pray and uh, focus our thoughts on on what God would have us hear today from his word. Heavenly Father, you are so good, so gracious, and um, you've had a wonderful time, God, singing your praises today and uh, listening to your word read and imbibing your your truths, Lord, uh, of these things that, that we've heard and that we're singing up to you and um, just even in our greeting time, God, and just the prayer for us to uh, be faithful in giving and the scripture there that, that you love a cheerful giver. We thank you for all these things, God, um, and it's leading to, to this time uh, in your word and how precious, how precious, God, and how needy we are uh, for the truth of your word um, every Sunday at the very, very least to to hear it proclaimed, to hear it preached, uh, to have it, have it um, penetrate our hearts and uh just uh for that to to continue week by week by week um, as we are faithful to to study your word ourselves personally so uh, thank you for all that god thank you for this time especially uh, that we get to look into the precious gospel of mark again um this this time so please please lord encourage us um make us make us uh really eager god to, to listen to your word and um to to apply it and um May we help one another uh, in that endeavor, uh, because you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And as you're turning there, some of you are familiar with the famous comedy skit by the old-time duo, Abbott and Costello, called Who's On First?, Yes? And some of you who aren't, uh, you'll get a little bit of a treat today. Allow me to share just a, a little bit of that comedy sketch from Abbott and Costello as we get started. And the background is that Lou Costello is considering becoming a baseball player. And his friend, Bud Abbott, wants to make sure he knows what he's getting into. And so Abbott says to Costello, strange as it may seem, They give baseball players nowadays very peculiar names, strange names. And Costello says, funny names? Abbott, nicknames, nicknames. Now, on the St. Louis team, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know is on third. Costello, that's what I want to find out. I want you to tell me the names of the fellows on the St. Louis team. Abbott, I'm telling you, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know is on third. You know the fellows' names? Yes. Well, then, who's playing first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name on first base. Who? The fellow playing first base. Who? Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? I'm not asking you. I'm telling you. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. And it goes on just a little bit more. Costello says, look, when you pay the first baseman every month, Who gets the money? Every dollar of it. And why not? The man's entitled to it. Who is? Yes. So who gets it? Uh, Why shouldn't he? Well, sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes. After all, the man earns it. Who does? Absolutely. Well, all I'm trying to find out is, what's the guy's name on first base? Oh, no, no, no. What is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. No, who's on first? <laughs> that famous humorous thing. There's a point to all this. Sometimes, sometimes, it can be pretty confusing for us as Christians to figure out who is on Christ's team. Who is actually for Christ? My sermon title today is Who is with Christ? And... The theme of our text in Mark chapter 9 is that Jesus teaches that a person's works and words will testify as to whether they are truly for him or not. Jesus teaches that a person's works and words will testify as to whether that person is truly for with Jesus or not. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 41. Please stand, if you are able, as I read our text for today. Mark 9, starting in verse 38. John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Please be seated. We have two parts to our text today, and uh, not exactly points. They're just two parts so that we can break down the just the passage. And um, it's in your bulletin there. There's no insert, but it's on the bulletin sheet. The first one is John's ambiguous report. John's ambiguous report. It's from verse 38. And by the way, Luke is the only other gospel writer to mention these words of John. He writes in Luke 9, Jesus answered and said to him, which connects John's words here to what was previously happening uh, prior to verse 38, which was what? You recall from last week, as Jesus' ministry focus shifts to private teaching from these public miracles that he's doing for everyone, he gives a lesson on true greatness and he's discipling and demonstrating what humility looks like to the 12 and this is in stark contrast once again to the 12's prideful debate about who among them is going to be the greatest right or who is the greatest they're arguing about that right after Jesus tells them that the Son of Man is to suffer and he's going to be killed and it's going to be a violent death and then he will rise again so this is the issue Jesus says to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be what? Last of all and a servant of all. Right? We got that lesson loud and clear last week. And he says, as we got the explanation last week, whoever receives or welcomes one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me or welcomes me does not receive me only, right? Does not receive me only, but him who sent me. And so John is replying and answering to this teaching from Jesus. And what does he say to him in verse 38 in our text this morning as we get started? Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. So John, the beloved disciple here, he feels the need in this context to inform Jesus of something that happened previously. We don't know exactly when it was, and we hadn't heard about it in Mark's gospel. And again, it's not mentioned in any of the other gospels, this incident. So I'm calling this John's Ambiguous report because I myself am not really certain why John shares this right now in this situation. Maybe John is trying to change the subject, as some have said, because he and the twelve are embarrassed and ashamed about their pride. Maybe, as others believe, John has completely missed the point of Jesus' lesson on true greatness and humility and being a servant of all. So he shares this report thinking the Lord would approve of what they did. Aren't we good, Lord? We told this guy to stop it. We might remember, too, though, here in chapter 9, that the nine disciples, right, when Peter, James, and John were at the Mount of Transfiguration, the nine disciples who were at the bottom, they, were, they failed in their attempt to cast out a demon from this young boy, right? And so perhaps John was reminded of this as Jesus was teaching them about being least of all and a servant of all. Still others, lastly, suggest that maybe John's conscience was stirred by Jesus' lesson about being humble. And so he's bringing this report, wondering if they did the right thing, and, and wanting Jesus' response. Almost like, teacher, we saw someone casting demons out in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. And kind of like holding his breath, waiting for Jesus' response. Whatever the reason, this is why I'm calling it John's ambiguous report. And he reports it to Jesus, and he says what he says. John and the others, probably the twelve, they saw someone casting out demons in your name. And so I want to make just a few observations about that report that he gives in verse 38. First of all, this man is not identified here or anywhere else in the Gospels. He is unidentified. He's nameless. We don't know anything about him except what's here. Also, the disciples saw him. Okay, they witnessed him casting out demons, plural, demons. So they saw him doing this on multiple occasions, okay, or they saw him doing it on one occasion and there was many demons that he cast out. Right? Either way, he was actually doing this, this miraculous supernatural work of throwing demons out of people. Lastly, this unidentified man was doing this supernatural work, as John plainly says, in your name, in Jesus' name. In other words, by by Jesus' power and authority, representing Jesus, him and his character. So the inference is that someone, at least one other person besides the 12 disciples, were able to do this incredible feat and we read in, in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus sends out the 70, right? The first sending out was only of the 12. The next one in Luke chapter 10, he sends out the 70 to go preach the gospel and he gives them specific instructions. And they're also given the authority to cast out demons as they come back and start bragging about, right? And so, so maybe this guy was, he'd end up being one of those 70 that was sent out later. So we don't know. Whoever this man was, he was doing the real thing, right? John and the others saw him doing it. It wasn't like an Acts 19 situation. Remember, the seven sons of Sceva were attempting and failing to do this. If you want to turn there quickly with me, I just want to uh, bring to your recollection this rather humorous incident. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And this is after Jesus dies. He's resurrected. He ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, Peter preaches, men are getting saved, people are getting saved by the thousands, they're going out preaching the gospel, turn the world upside down. Acts chapter 9, Paul joins the fun, and in verse 11 of Acts 19, it says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits, the demons, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, who was a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Right? So there's getting beat up and then there's getting the pants beaten off of you, literally. And this was the case with this, this guy who was these, these seven sons who were trying to, attempting to exercise demons. So, I bring that up because we should understand, folks, that the ability, the power to exercise, to cast out demons, is quite the incredible work. It's a rare and amazing ability. And this unnamed man that John mentioned somehow was able to do this supernatural feat, and he was doing it in Christ's name. What does John report next? He says, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. We tried to stop him from doing this, from casting evil spirits out of people. Take note of that. And what's the reason that John gives for their action? Because he was not following us. And this man doing this supernatural, powerful work, throwing demons out. He's not in our group, so he must be stopped. Notice John says he was not following us, and he's talking to who? The Lord. He was not following us. He didn't say he was not following you, Lord. This guy not following us. How dare he? So again, it seems that he, John, and the others, the rest of the disciples there, are caught up in themselves, rather than being caught up in the Lord, rather than being caught up in their concern and care for suffering people. So that's the report from John. This somewhat ambiguous as to reason, but open and honest actually as to what they saw before, and he's he's telling telling Master Jesus. So let's look now at Jesus' generous retort. Jesus' generous retort. Whereas John's report could be understood as maybe closed or a bit narrow. Jesus' retort is more generous. But, Jesus said, there's a contrasting conjunction there, right? In reply to John, do not hinder him. It's a simple correction he gives. It was not a chastisement. It was not a sharp rebuke. Just clear, gentle instruction. And maybe some of you are thinking, yeah, it would have been surprising. Maybe um, even a bit odd. Wouldn't it if, if Jesus replied, great going, John. After all, this man was actually casting filthy, wicked, evil, demonic spirits out of suffering people and, and bringing relief to, to these people who are, who are afflicted and, and tormented in their souls. I'm glad you tried to stop them from doing such a thing. Obviously, he doesn't say that. Rather, he says, do not hinder him. And then he gives his reason. His reason. His reason. For there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. That's a very basic reason. Look, if, if this man or anyone is actually doing miracles or works like this, hey, legitimately in, in my name, by my power and authority, representing me, then this person is not going to be talking evil about me. He's not going to be talking bad, wrong, evil, falsehoods about lies about me and we want to recall previously in mark the gospel of mark if you want to turn there quickly with me to mark chapter 3 jesus said at that time in response to the scribes who were accusing him of being possessed by bailsable by the devil and casting out demons by the ruler of the demons okay this blasphemy that they're accusing jesus with mark 3 verse 22 the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he's possessed by Beelzebub, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. So, in other words, Satan's not that dumb. He wouldn't be doing that. The the principle holds true here as well, that this man who is legitimately casting out demons, he's actually doing it, in the name of Christ, he cannot be working for Satan. He cannot be working for evil. He's casting evil spirits out. So Jesus says, don't stop him. Stop preventing him. He nor anyone else, will be able to do such things, such miraculous works in my name, justifiably, and then later speak evil against my name. It's not happening, according to the Lord. So, as I was studying and reading this and thinking about it, it brought to mind this other thing that Jesus says, though, in the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe some of you are thinking of it as well. Matthew chapter 7. What about this? What about when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, he says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Going to verse 20, he says, So then you will know them by their fruits. And he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out many cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, which perhaps are the most frightening words in all of scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the key to understanding these two things is that not everyone who claims to be a Christian, including these false teachers and other people who claim faith in Christ, is actually a Christian. Not everyone who says to Jesus, even people who call him Lord, is actually a Christian. So how does one know? Well, Jesus explains in there in those verses in chapter 7. It's simply by observing their fruits. What is their life like? What is it characterized by? Is their life bearing good fruit, good spiritual fruit, as in spiritual attitude fruit, as in spiritual action fruit, like actually doing things that God says to do? It even means, it even means spiritual converts, God using you to, to save people. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. That's what Jesus says. So it's very black and white. It's not to say that in a Christian's life there will be no sin, or even that there will be no fruit that is bruised or battered or bumps along the road. But listen, there will not be a continued pattern of bad fruit. Action, attitude, barren converts, not even seeking to make converts. There's not going to be a continual life of bad fruit in a real Christian's life. Jesus is going to say to them, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. practice lawlessness is breaking God's law. And it also is sin by omission, by not doing what Jesus says. That's why he says in Luke 6, 46, uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do what I say? So this is uh, yet another wake-up call, dear friends, for those of you who are claiming Christ and actually don't know him as your personal Savior and Lord. And his command to you it's not an optional thing but his command is for you to repent turn from your sin and your unbelief and your sins of commission which you're doing and your sins of omission things that you're supposed to be doing and you're not doing repent of that and put your faith in Christ trust in the only one who can save your soul forever your eternal life is at stake so Jesus says, come. And yes, that's an invitation, but it's a command. The Lord commands you to come to him, to believe and trust in him. And it's deadly serious. So Jesus' answer to these folks questioned him, who say to who him on Judgment Day, Lord, didn't, didn't we do all this stuff in your name? His answer is, is yes, you, you claimed to have done those things in my name and you claimed that you were doing all these things, but certainly no, you did not do any of those things in my name, representing me by my authority and power. He's not even actually acknowledging that they've even done those things that they have claimed to do. But he's saying in the end, your life, it was all about you. It was never about me. It was all about you, so therefore, you need to get out of my sight. Truly frightening, terrifying words. Folks, um, when he says it was all about you, he's saying you're, what you thought was good fruit was actually bad fruit, and Jesus can tell the difference. He knows it inside and out. So he knows bad fruit when he sees it. Sometimes we get fooled, right? I go to the grocery store and I I pick fruit and, man, those strawberries, they they turned out really, ugh. But Jesus can can tell inside and out. So I I bring that up as a a gospel call, but also going back to Mark chapter 9. Okay, The Lord is saying about this guy, that's not the case here. That's not the case here. Go back to Mark chapter 9. He's saying there there is a way to do works for God in a genuine following Christ way. And these works for him in his name, listen, they will show themselves to be true. They will show themselves to be true or not. If someone speaks evil or badly of Christ or they're bearing bad fruit in their lives, they'll show themselves as not being for him over time. But anyone who is doing works for his sake, they'll show themselves as being actually for him over time. Their works, their words will testify to this. They won't be able to say anything wrong, bad, evil, besmirching, or not really representing who Christ is as a pattern. As the renowned theologian of the 1980s, Cindy Lauper, sang, your true colors will be shining through. Another way to put that is that time and truth go hand in hand. So a person's works will testify as to whether they are on Jesus' team or not, whether they're really for and with Christ or not. And listen, Jesus adds something very important here. and He says, and even if that person is not of your group, Right? John's saying, well, he wasn't following us, that's why he needed to be stopped. Jesus says, no, this could be. He's doing my, these things, so don't stop him. And even if that person is not of your group. So, folks, uh, today's text, what Jesus is teaching here, the main point is not meant as a doctrinal teaching on the, the wrongness of Christian denominations or to, to promote Christian unity or to teach that doctrine is not important. Jesus is not saying just to accept everybody who's doing Christian work without thinking, without discernment. He's not saying that doctrine and truth doesn't matter. That's not his point here. But, it's a pretty important but, so Jesus' generous retort. What can we infer from his reply to John? For us, the need to be careful. Careful of our attitudes towards other Christians who are... Doing God's work, especially our attitudes and perspectives towards those who are not following us, not in our theological camp, not exactly the same as our our church's statement of faith. We may disagree with other churches or individuals on some points of theology, but it doesn't mean that they are all outside of true Christianity. It doesn't mean straight up that they are not with Christ. Hey, we are part of the IFCA. I, myself, am an IFCA member. We went to IFCA Faithful Men Retreat yesterday. It stands for Independent Fundamentalist Churches of America, and we stand on that strongly. But we don't want IFCA to stand for I fellowship completely alone, right? Or, or uh, I'll fight Christians anywhere. Hey, it, 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 doesn't, it has that reputation. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful of our attitudes. Some examples of other churches and theological camps. Um, sovereign grace ministries. We don't, we don't agree with them, uh, as far as cessationism and continuationism goes, as far as the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how they're, they're practiced today. We don't, we don't agree. They're, they're more continuationist than we are cessationist. For example. And yet, we love and utilize their music. I thank God for sovereign grace virtually every day. Um, They have good gospel ministry and teaching, but uh, the music that's been produced out of there, theologically and skill-wise, music, just um, so grateful for them. Ligonier Ministries, which is the late R.C. Sproul, started that. Uh, We disagree on baptism, on ecclesiology, on eschatology, and there there are pretty strong disagreements. And yet... How much, how much do we appreciate the, the faithfulness to God's Word? Their convictions about bibliology, about the Gospel, about soteriology, the holiness of God, true justice. Okay, hey, Ligonier Ministries, just, uh, I, I, I can't recommend them more heartily to you. So just a few examples there. Let us guard our hearts, folks, of prideful thinking sectarianism, attitudes that it's only our church or our group that are legitimately doing God's work and serving Christ. Hey, different Christian denominations, and again, folks, there are some mainstream denominations that are so far off the rails that, that it's hard for me to call them an actual church. But there's some denominations or groups within denominations, individual people, we differ on theology and doctrine, but... As long as they are true believers proclaiming the true gospel, hey, they are with Christ. They're doing works, good works, in his name, and praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It's it's not easy doing gospel ministry. Okay? And so, let me just uh, remind you of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, we should actually rejoice if gospel ministry is happening like the Apostle Paul. Because he says in Philippians 1... Starting in verse 12, I'm just going to read 12 to 18 to you. Now, I want you to know, brethren, Philippian brothers, dear gospel partners, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment, remember Paul's writing from prison there, right, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And then he says in verse 15, some of them, who are preaching the gospel, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Like, envy and strife, jealous of, of the Apostle Paul and making kind of trouble with him. But some, others, are also from goodwill. He says the latter, those people do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former, the ones who are doing it with envy and strife, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, Rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. It's a little bizarre uh, what's happening there. But Paul explains in verse 18, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. He doesn't just say it once. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Maybe he's just like firming that up in his own heart, right, as he's sitting there in prison. But he's encouraging the Philippians here. Gospel's going out, and whatever their motives were, whatever harm they're trying to do me, I rejoice. Let's rejoice that the gospel, the good news, is going out to the lost. Let's go back to Mark chapter nine and what Jesus says next. Look there, he says, "For he who is not against us is for us." So to the prideful. Son of Thunder, John, and the rest of the Twelve, Jesus needs to tell him and them, hey, stop preventing this man from doing my work. For he who is not against us is for us. See the gracious way that Jesus says us there? Hey, that's, that's me and you, men. Me and you, Twelve, dear, hand-picked men. Us. We're in this together. And if someone is not Against you and me, then he is for you and me. He is on our side. He's on our team. Interestingly, in a different situation, and again when the the Jewish religious elite were blaspheming Jesus and accusing him of doing this by the power of the devil, right? Matthew twelve or Matthew twelve thirty, Luke eleven twenty three. He says the opposite there. He says to them. He At that time, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So the principle that we want to take note of here is that, and again, this is not the main point of Mark chapter 9, 38 to 41, but something just to draw out and consider. There's no neutrality when it comes to following Christ. There's no neutral ground. I'm just reminded of uh, Revelation 3, right? That last church and the lukewarm folks. Jesus says, I'll spit you out. There's no neutrality. Ultimately, you're either for him or against him. And there's a story of a lady who was going around taking a street survey, one of those poll things, asking passerbys this question. She would ask them, what do you think is worse, ignorance or Apathy. And one guy answers her curtly, I don't know and I don't care. When it comes to following Christ, no one can have that kind of attitude. Don't know, don't care. When it comes down to it, you must either be for him and with him or against him. So who is who is with Christ? A person's works and even their words will testify. And he who is not against us is for us. And so in verse 41, he says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. One of the ways you can discern if someone is for Christ, with Christ, or not, is by how they treat fellow Christians. And Jesus explains this not by giving an example of something doing an even greater, more powerful, more miraculous work than casting out demons, okay, like healing the sick or curing handicaps or raising the dead. Rather, he gives the example of someone who does a seemingly small thing, gives a cup of water because they know you are a Christian. We should be aware that there was no water flowing there in faucets out of The bathrooms in Galilee were only wells. And travelers could easily get dehydrated walking through the heat of the Middle East. So you had water, precious water, that you had taken some considerable effort to bring home with you. And travelers are coming by. They're parched. They're dying of thirst. Ah, a cup of water. Cold water on their lips. And... The greater context is this, folks, especially after Jesus would be crucified and dead and buried and raised, is that there's a risk. There's a risk in, in treating other Christian people who are following this, this Jewish rabbi, hey, this blaspheming man even. Hey, there's a risk for those who have been converted to, to follow him and to be associated with believers in Christ. And so, Jesus says, Jesus says, you even give a cup of water to someone. I felt, because you know they're Christians. So Christians are going to do what they're going to do. Right? It's like, the, uh, it's like the cat outside of our, our backyard. Right? Phoebe was with, uh, we had a bird at the time, and the bird. Kind of just got out of her hands and didn't. Phoebe didn't see the cat, nor did anyone else. And immediately, seconds later, the, the neighbor cat pounces on the bird, takes it in his mouth, and goes running away. Right? I forget if it was Hodge or Podge. We had two parakeets named Hodge and Podge, so it was one of them. And uh, right, cats are going to do what they're going to do, but Christians, Christians are going to do what they're going to do. A person's works, their deeds, they're going to testify to whether they're with Christ or not so I want you to get this last part here okay? because Jesus says truly I say to you right what does that mean it means there's, what he's going to say next is very important and we see that in the gospels a lot of times it says amen amen truly truly I say to you it's like you should have already been listening but really listen up here okay? truly I say to you there's an emphasis there If someone does that, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, specifically because you're Christians, I truly say to you, He will not lose His reward. And Jesus wants us to get this, folks. He notices the little things. Yeah, I told you before that Jesus can tell, right? Inside and out. Look, He sees the humble things. He sees the seemingly insignificant things. These things, if, if you are doing them in the name of Christ, and we you know what that means now, right? For the sake of Christ, representing Christ. Done with modesty, done humbly. He knows it. He sees. No one else might see, no one else might notice. Left hand, maybe doesn't even know what the right hand is doing. Maybe it was maybe it was you okay, who last week wiped the men's toilet. Okay, because you desired for our blessed church to be a hospitable place for everyone who comes. Maybe you get zero earthly recognition or appreciation for doing something like that. Bringing water for people. Maybe for blessing someone with refreshment, with humble service. But Jesus says, truly I say to you, He will not lose His reward. You will not lose your reward. And so you do it. You continue to do it. These ostensibly insignificant acts of service. And you do it only for the rewards not now, not recognition now, not for the praise of men now, but for your reward in eternity. For the heavenly rewards. And then there's some who say, no, I don't, I don't do it even for those rewards. Right? And it seems pretty pious, seems pretty holy. But I say, be careful. Be careful. It's all good, I think. You know, I know what people are talking about and know where they're coming from. But, Jesus says in a very serious tone here, hey, you will not lose your reward. There's rewards awaiting you in heaven. Remember in Matthew 25, close to the end there of Matthew Gospel. Verse 35, he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. So a lot of people take that in there. It's like, you know, we've got a, we've got a. It is the Christian Church's job to decrease the poverty rate in the world, but they're ignoring that that Jesus says. All these things, these acts of mercy, you did it to these brothers of mine, and even to the least of them. Folks, he's talking about how Christians treat other Christians. And, and that time is going to be really hard because the, it's like tribulation period. And it's going to be really, really risky to associate yourselves with other Christians. But Jesus will say, when we're before him, Like he tells them in Matthew 25, come, you who are blessed of my father, my heavenly father, receive your heavenly reward. So humble acts of service to to fellow Christians. They're noticed by Jesus. They're rewarded by God. So I say to you, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Nothing can get at those. No one can take those away. Moth or rust will not destroy. These will not break in and steal. They can't. Because these eternal rewards are from your Heavenly Father. So as we conclude here and start to approach the Lord's table, time and truth go hand in hand. who, Who is with Christ? Well, a person's works and their words will testify will testify over time as to whether they are really, really, truly for him and with him or not. And God knows it. Jesus knows it. And don't worry too much, folks, about what others are doing. Just make sure you are walking with the Lord. Make sure you, you're not accountable for... I mean, you, you, don't, you don't have control over that. You're accountable ultimately for yourself. But in doing so, God helps us to help others know him, right? So take what Jesus said in John twenty one to Peter. When Peter's walking along and, and Jesus is restoring him, right? And then Peter looks at, at John and he says, Hey, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Peter and Jesus says to, to Peter, what? Don't you worry about him. You follow me. So we shouldn't worry too much about What's going on with others? We need to focus on our walks with the Lord.